Portland, Oregon, welcome to the Synergy Autism Podcast, a place where you'll hear from professionals, parents, and people diagnosed with autism in a manner that guides you to a better understanding of this sometimes mysterious and perplexing difference. Each child and each family is unique. Let's all listen and learn from one another. Let's understand autism together. Here's your host, Barbara Avila. Hello and welcome to the first ever Synergy Autism Podcast. I am so excited that you're here and I can't wait to share today's podcast with you. Our mission with this podcast is to share with you the stories of people and the passion that they bring to the field of autism and relationship building. So here at Synergy, we focus very strongly on inspiring connections between parents and children to not only alleviate challenging behaviors, but also to work on the fundamental building blocks of relationship building that are often so challenging for kids and for people of all ages with autism. I've had the pleasure of hearing Tina Bryson speak on two different occasions in addition to being in one of her case study groups via the internet. While her work is not specific to autism, it is specific to engaging connections within the brain structures both of the parent to learn how to calm him or herself, but then also within the child and the child's brain and realizing how connection and soothing a child's sensory emotional system can be an ideal way to start in supporting a child's natural and engaged learning. She and Dan Siegel have written a book together called No Drama Discipline. In this work, they talk about how discipline is is really about teaching and skill building not the traditional definition of discipline that we all think of when we hear that word. I had the great pleasure of interviewing Tina Bryson in August 2015 for the purpose of this Synergy Autism podcast. I invite you to join us as Tina talks about her new center that has opened up in the Los Angeles area, how connecting with your child is more about raising expectations than giving in at all, and how powerful you are in your child's social and emotional development. In the podcast, you'll also be hearing from Corinna Gilligan, who is a very good friend, colleague, and one of my clients. She currently lives in Vancouver, BC area with her family. However, she's lived all over the world. I have had the pleasure of serving her family and her wonderful son, Ryan, for many, many years. She has found Tina Bryson's work extremely helpful in our work together. Without further ado, I introduce you to Tina Bryson and Corinna Gilligan. My primary job, besides mom, is to write and speak. And then I've just launched, as you mentioned, the Center for Connection. It's a multi or trans discipline um, practice where we will um, focus less on pathology and, um, and labels and focus less on just behavior and more look at who the child is, what their behavior is telling us about, what skills they need to be built and to really promote this whole child and we've got um, psychotherapists, uh, we've even got stuff for parents like couples and adult uh, classes and things like that, Um, but we've got psychotherapy, educational therapy, occupational therapy, neuropsychological testing, um, and we're actually working on pediatrics and speech and language right now as well. So the idea behind it is very much in line with what you're your work is and what you're wanting to talk about I think is this idea that connected relationships change connections in the brain and uh, and that when we connect to each other as professionals or as parents that can change our own brain connections and can change what we have capacity for um, changing in kids as well and so that's kind of the exciting work and that's sort of the umbrella that pulls all these little different um, hats to get together for me. What I often say in autism is that everything that you see in um, autism happens in typical development. It's just often a matter of extremes. And so when you're talking about connection, it's this extreme of having some challenges around that area um, of being able to connect because, and in my opinion, a lot of sensory stuff going on. on. Um, So it's really exciting that your center is also including an occupational therapist, for example. You know, it's really amazing. I didn't, in in all of my clinical training, I didn't learn anything about the sensory system, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, what was really interesting is as I was seeing kids who were coming to me and the parents were reporting, you know, um, anxiety issues or or just bad behavior was sort of the global umbrella for being really reactive and dysregulated. 
um, as I started to explore what, what was really going on with this aroused nervous system, that's where I sort of discovered the sensory piece. And, and I, I believe that the sensory um, stuff and, and the world of occupational therapy, which I'm not trained in, is a huge explanatory factor for how all of us function, what all of our preferences are, and, and all of those things. And so I love what you just said there, Barb, about um, about uh, typical development and, and it being at extremes. And I think, you know, um, even for ourselves as parents, um, we all have um, certain aspects of our, of our own development that are extreme in certain ways as well. And yeah, so there's this absolutely. diversity um, among parents, diversity among kids, and then how we sort of look at all of that along a different kind of spectrum is, is always an interesting piece of the puzzle, I think. I have to say that's one of the things that I love about your book, Tina, because I actually use a lot of the tips and advice that you give with my non-verbal 13-year-old when he's dysregulated and his sensory systems have just taken him to a place where he's lost it. And so a lot of the tips and techniques that you advise are wonderful just for when your child's having a tantrum about something that doesn't necessarily need discipline, but just needs to help him re-regulate himself. Yes. So I, I was just explaining to Bob that my son yesterday, I told him something and he was upset about that. He then went for a bicycle ride and he ripped his trousers, so he got even more upset about that. And when I then applied a lot of the tips that you suggest about trying to reconnect and getting down at his level, and empathizing with him. It was amazing that with the little that he is able to verbalize, he brought out all the things that had stressed him that day, not just those particular issues. Ah. It was so empowering for me as a parent and let me understand where he was. That's beautiful, I love that. Because <laughs> what he was doing there, for you, you gave him this sort of moment or this opportunity to release his nervous system arousal there. Mm -hmm. You know, he. He needed some soothing, and and you know, in his case, there were several factors that were leading, just like all of us, to this this um, state of hyper arousal. You know, there was the sensory piece, and of course, you know, sensory. Uh, when we get when we get overwhelmed in the sensory system, it's like our nervous system is detecting threat, and so we go into these these sort of dysregulated states so that we can focus on safety. And and so he there was that, and then the frustration of his. his trousers being ripped and all of these things and you gave him this this moment and this opportunity this sort of safe haven we call it in the attachment literature mm -hmm. where he could in his in his in his way probably you know physically he used words he used probably all kinds of tools or, or ways to express this but by you focusing Corinna on connection and on soothing it allowed him to move back into a place of better regulation. Yeah. I think the other part of that that is so crucial in um, your work, Tina, that I appreciate that it sounds like, Karina, you were able to do in that moment is really calming your own nervous system first. <laughs> and, <laughs> and being able to, instead of being triggered by, oh, here we go again, or having another frustration you know, internally of really trying to go um, calm yourself first and then be able to um, connect with your child and use all those wonderful techniques. That's key, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, and That's so difficult. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, one of my favorite descriptions of you, Tina, is that um, it was in one, an article I was reading and it said that you're known for feats of composure amidst kid tornadoes. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I don't know that I've ever heard that phrase, and I don't know that I would use it to describe myself. Really? <laughs> but um, that's what I aim for. That's what I aim for. And I think, you know, really, and you know, when I wrote No Drama Discipline with Dan, it was so interesting because what we really wanted to do was sort of look at discipline from a completely different perspective. And and when we started doing that, we realized, oh my goodness, everything we're saying comes back to where we started in Whole Brain Child, which is that idea of connection before mm -hmm. redirection. And so I have to tell you that when all of that kind of clicked for me in the last few years, um, and, and as I started learning, you know, I, there are some gurus in the field that have just like made my work so much more um, practical 
practical and meaningful. Like I love um, Stephen Porges's polyvagal theory. Absolutely. And um, you know, I got to study with Pat Ogden and sensory motor psychotherapy. And and as I really started understanding the nervous system mm-hmm. and about how um, when we go into these states of hyperarousal, we really turn off our social engagement circuitry and we really turn off our learning um, circuitry and all of these different things. And so, what 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 really started shifting for me as a parent and and even in my work as I'm talking with other parents is if I can just focus on, if it's a discipline moment, if it's a moment where my child's just sad and it's not what I would think of as a discipline moment, if there's conflict between us, if there's conflict between them and their siblings, whatever's going on, if I can keep soothing Mm -hmm. their nervous systems Mm -hmm. at the forefront of my mind, and of course that requires me to keep, to soothe my own, yeah. That changes the trajectory of what happens so much. It keeps both of us um, in such a better state of mind, and it makes our interactions productive. It makes the discipline actually happen. So I think, you know, for children on the spectrum, um, that those states of dysregulation can come, you know, not necessarily from something um, that you would expect. It can be something that, you know, sort of like all children, something happens and you think that it's going to make them happy and it has the opposite effect and these kinds of things. But I think that if we hold on to what Corinna was just talking about there, about soothing, 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 that's what allows us to um, pave the way for deeper relationships with our children that feel rewarding to both of us, to pave the way for discipline, um, to pave the way for social engagement to to um, start amplifying. And so I think that is, you know, the bedrock of, of, of what we're talking about here. Absolutely. I also, I would love for you to talk a little bit more about the word discipline. I mean, that really, you know, when I picked up that book for the first time, you know, of course, my hackles went up a little bit going, discipline, all right, you know. And, and I just, What's that? I said you saw the D word and you thought, yeah, oh, no. Exactly. Um, <laughs> so if you'd be willing to, to kind of describe what you mean by discipline in this book. Yeah, so it was really interesting when Dan and I decided to write this book, we had several colleagues who asked us to not use the word discipline in the title, and and Dan and I thought long and hard about that. Mm -hmm. Um, Because of course, people's association with the word discipline is punishment. Mm -hmm. And um, and in our culture, we are actually pretty um, unintentional and pretty unthoughtful when it comes to discipline. Typically, the discipline process is um, whatever the parent's reaction or the first thing that comes to our mind in the moment. Or we have sort of a handful of tricks and we pull them out just over and over and over. Um, what, so what Dan and I decided to do was something kind of lofty. We decided we wanted to reclaim the original meaning of the word and ca- start changing the cultural associations. And the original meaning of the word is about teaching. And I like to throw also in the phrase skill building. And so the whole framework of the book is that if the whole point of discipline is to teach and to build skills, we really need to start looking at what we are doing in the name of discipline because most of what we often do in the name of discipline in a moment is actually counterproductive to learning and skill building. And so (laughs) the whole framework actually turns most of what we do about discipline on its head. And I think, again, the bedrock of that is to go back to the idea that when our children are... Um, acting out, when their emotions are running high, when they're what I call in the red zone, so they go sort of outside of what their nervous system, outside of a balanced, uh, you know, uh, brain and body where they're they're reactive and, and uh, that when they go into those states, it's, it, and the behavior often is really bad and disrespectful or, or even um, aggressive in those moments, those are often the discipline moments. and. Um, But yet, when they're in that state, that's actually the least likely time for them to learn. And Mm -hmm. so the whole idea is to kind of say, okay, why is my child acting this way? What's going on for them? And bringing curiosity and peeling back those layers to not just look at the behavior, but to say, what's what's really happening here? And then to ask, what is the lesson or what is the skill that I can use this moment to build? Because this child's behavior is showing me that they don't have a good strategy for this kind of thing, or they don't have the skill in this moment to do it. Um, and then what is the most effective way to do that? So that it brings some intentionality. But where I really try to emphasize is that when kids are acting out because they're really reactive, 
our number one job in the moment is to actually soothe them. So mm -hmm. um, this is not about permissiveness, though. Let me be very clear about that. Um, my kids would actually say I'm pretty strict and I have very high expectations. We know that children do best if they have high expectations mm -hmm. and they're given strong limits and boundaries and all of these things while also being attuned to and emotionally um, connected to. And so what, what I like to think about is, let's say the child is being really disrespectful and yelling at you. Our first instinct is to typically say, you can't talk to me that way. <laughs> um, and the joke I like to make about that is that's kind of a funny thing to say because they can talk to you that way, they just already did. And um, <laughs> so that's kind of a funny thing to say. Yeah. But our first response is to kind of get reactive and, and to demand that we be treated better. But when the child doesn't typically talk to us that way, they're talking to us that way because their emotions have gotten the best of them. And so if I really want to do the skill building of teaching my child better emotional controls and to speak more respectfully even when their emotions run high, the first thing I have to do is to get those emotions suits so that they can be, their learning circuitry can turn on. So I might in that moment say something like, I can see you're so angry and frustrated right now. Mm -hmm. What is it you need? You know, come here, come close to me. And to really bring on mama nurturing. And then when my child is calmed down, typically they will say, you know, they will, they, they know that they weren't supposed to do that, that they often feel bad about it. And that's when we can then say, let's talk about, you know, the words you were using or those kinds of things. So you always address it. Um, but the timing matters more than anything because if our goal is to teach and to build skills we have to find timing where they're open to that. One thing that I find interesting in autism is that sometimes um, students will have uh, very rote phrases or um, automatic things that they say or loops you know I often call them loops that they get into um, where those can be indications of them feeling dysregulated and needing that same sort of connection and, and moment of empathy before then moving on and being able to give them the words for kind of integrating those parts of their brain and um, the emotions that are actually going on and giving them words for those. Am I making sense? I, I love that you said that because actually that makes perfect sense to me. I've never thought about it that way, Barb, but um, that behavior, this is really, you know, the, the trick for parents and caregivers is to really be attuned, right? And to know our children and to right. pick up on these moments where we can give an attuned response. And that, that looping or that, that you're talking about is actually the way I would interpret that behavior. And please counter if you see it differently, yeah. um, is that that's a self-soothing technique, Absolutely. right? It's like, Absolutely. Like talking or making a counter noise or, you know, whatever. Self-soothing that may not necessarily be working all the way for them, though. Right. Yeah. Right. It's, that's your prompt. You know, that, that's a bid to connect. That's a prompt to, actually, I don't know, I guess it would depend if it, if it was a bid to connect, depending on how severe. But I think that that's, a, that's an indication for us um, to say, oh, they're, they're, they're attempting self-soothing, it's not really working, what else can I do to soothe that nervous system? So I think that's perfect. Yeah. I have to say, I have a particular situation with my son which is very similar, but I find really difficult to deal with in that, for example, if he's totally stressed out because there are people, too many people around and he can't, just can't cope with them, he'll tell them, get out of here, and it's a phrase he's got from a movie, so he says it rather vehemently, and when you then work on the soothing, by the time that you've worked on reconnecting and getting him to calm down, it's actually very difficult to go back and revisit the situation to actually empower him to use a phrase that might be a little bit more appropriate when other people are around. Yeah, so one of the things I, I would I would experiment with, and I think it's it's always, you know, Whenever we're working with kids and with families, it's always an experiment, right? We have these ideas and suggestions, and sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. Um, is to uh, not in the moment, mm -hmm. but at other times to kind of embed a different replacement phrase, maybe through play, um, maybe through repetition, um, mm -hmm. those kinds of things, to give a different um, automatic response. Um, in that moment. Yeah, I love the phrase that you and I think Dan use is the decouple automaticity. Yes. Yeah, I feel like that really plays in here of trying to um, help your son and, and lots of kids with those loops of learn, 
other kinds of things to say or to manage, but in less stressful scenarios, so that you're not avoiding the situation altogether, but giving um, manageable practice. Yeah. But yes, that's a challenging one, Prina, because also, you know, you're focused on him, and people have, you know, gone on and moved on, and, um, you know, so that is a challenging one. I think, too, you know, development is so much still unfolding for him. Did you say, you said he's 13, right? Yes. Yeah, so he's got maybe probably more from a social and emotional point of view, like a four or five-year-old. Okay. Yeah. So he's just, you know, his brain is actually biologically on the cusp though of tremendous change right now Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, so it'll be interesting to see you know his brain in some ways may become more plastic or more changeable um, you know uh, over the next uh, four or five years you may see you know skill building that you do with him um, having a, a different kind of effect um, based on how that adolescent brain development is happening and hormonal stuff and all of that. So that will be interesting to see as well. Well, there's so much I love about your work, Tina, but one of the, the kind of key pieces that I like is, is the concept of moving away from tools and techniques and really um, thinking about altering your lens. Yes. Um, and I think that's really key in autism and also really hard in autism because it's trying, you know, there's a lot of things that are happening in autism that um, don't initially kind of make sense or if you take them at surface value that it's, they're hard to understand and really having to slow yourself down to alter your lens to kind of look at the whole child and things like, you know. I don't know if you want to say anything else about altering your lens, but I just think that's such a crucial piece in parenting in general. Well, I think so, again, you know, so much of what we do as parents is instinct in the moment, and we're often so much of the time responding to our own internal states of chaos or calm as opposed to what's actually happening with our child in the moment. And I think, you know, people, want something practical. They want the tools. And of course, those can be really helpful because they give us something to hold on to, to change our automaticity in the moment. So I think there's absolute value with those. But there is, every child is different. And I think, you know, Dan and I couldn't stomach the idea of writing a a prescription formulaic type of book that says, you know, do these, you know, one, two, three, or, you know, those kinds of things. Because we, you know, every child is so unique and has such differences and every parent is. And you know, I've worked with families where the child was extremely sensory seeking. And so the child loved to slam into the parent and loved to, um, you know, be loud in the mom's face and all of these things. And mom had sensory sensitivities. And so what would happen is in order for the child to become regulated, he would, you know, just kind of sensorily vomit on his mom. Right. But it would dysregulate her. And so, you know, finding these ways, you know, that's, you know, whatever formula we wrote in the book might not have worked for that family. So I think that what we have to do is change how we think. And, And that starts with looking at our children and what the meaning of their behavior is Mm -hmm. from a really open place. And that requires so much um, intentionality because, you know, our our brains have been wired from the ways we were raised and the ways we've been treated and, and the books that we've read and the friends that were around and all of these things. And so, you know, the, the automaticity that happens in the parenting moment uh, um, is very powerful. And so I think if we can start training ourselves to bring, and I think bringing curiosity is one of the key things um, that, that plays into this thing that we're talking about here. And that is to come with wonderment and to come with, and I don't mean like saying, oh, my child is the most wonderful thing in the world. I mean, to go, why in the hell would he do that? You know, I mean, in your own mind, right? To ask these questions like, what is that about? What is going on there? I don't get that one minute, you know? And to kind of try and figure it out, to become a detective and to bring curiosity, but to not just make the assumptions. And I think that's what I really love to talk with teachers about is we've got all these assumptions and we see these kids who do these certain behaviors or they drive us crazy or they're really annoying or they seem to kind of invite trouble or whatever. And then we throw the, we say, you know, we say things like, well, you know, he's just a troublemaker and he's just seeking attention or she's just a drama queen or, 
Um, yeah. You know, she's just a little, you know, uh, whatever. We even throw, sometimes throw in some bigger words. And I think that um, that interrupts the process of trying to learn. And, and so the way that we, you know, if we can change. So here, let me say it this way really simply because I've kind of meandered there. If you think your child is doing something to you because they are a little brat, <laughs> the way you're going to respond is going to be really different. The way you're going to feel about your child, the way you're going to re respond to your child, the way you're going to use that as a discipline moment and how you're going to discipline is going to look very different than if you think, oh, she's really dysregulated right now. Yeah. Um, she, she, she needs some skill building here or she, she needs me to help chill her out in this moment everything's gonna the world is it's gonna be two completely different worlds and so that's why we have to change our thinking that's why we have to change our lens is to look at behavior differently as opposed to it just being what it is we have to peel back those layers and and look at look at the mind behind the behavior right absolutely um and that's why i love dan's phrase mind sight seeing your own mind and the mind of another is to really go okay, I'm going to get inside my kid's brain and make the best guess I can. And sometimes we have no idea. You know, sometimes we have no idea why they're doing what they do. But that's why I love Connect and Redirect so much because you don't have to. You know, um, the other night my um, my eight-year-old um, had been, he had been traveling, he had had strep throat, he was just exhausted. And, and I, I, I gave time knowing that he you know, might be more vulnerable to falling apart. Mm. So I gave a long period of time for just reading and, and sort of lying in bed and just, you know, having some slow bedtime instead of rush rush. Yeah. And, um, and it all went beautiful until it was time to turn off the light. And, um, you know, then, it, as is somewhat typical, there there begins the litany of all bodily grievances, like my gums hurt, my left toe stings, you know, all of this. And it's all like the worst pain he's ever been in ever in his life. And so we go through all of that. And, um, and then he begins to cry because he misses our dog that was hit by a car. But he doesn't even have a memory of the dog. He was too young. Oh, wow. um, but it's like he just, you know, he was feeling sad and tired, and so he, he thought of something sad. You know, I don't really know what that's about. He doesn't have a memory of that dog, but... Yeah. It, and then sometimes we have no idea what's going on. They're just really reactive. But the beauty of Connect and Redirect is you can go, I don't know what's going on. I don't know exactly what to do, but I can, I can connect, and I can soothe, and I can say, come here. I'm right here with you. You can cry as much as you need to, and I'm right here, you know. And we just soothe and soothe and soothe, and that almost always uh, does the trick. Well, that really is similar to what Corinna was talking about with her son just yesterday, right? Where, you know, all this other stuff kind of came out, and I almost, I do think in autism it comes out often as kind of these automatic phrases or the, you know, words that come to mind right away. and that are expressing sadness. It all has to come out and sometimes there is no rhyme or reason. They just need to get, let the pressure go and just spill it all out. And if you can be there for them, it makes such a huge difference. I love what you're saying there, Corinna, I, the way you're the languaging that, because, you know, really when the nervous system gets, um, gets in hyper arousal, right? And, and mm -hmm. what that how that happens for us physically is our body temperature can get hot, we can get red, we can even get splotchy, so sometimes it shows on our skin. Our heart rate increases, our blood pressure increases, our, um, our breathing increases, our muscles typically tense up. Um, sometimes it can be the opposite of all that and we can go kind of floppy and hypo-aroused, but when our nervous system, and, and you know, cumulatively through the day, your son probably had all kinds of things that kind of kept revving him up higher and higher mm. and higher into that higher nervous system arousal. Yeah. And the ways that we release nervous system arousal are very interesting. And this is a good thing to know about ourselves and our children. Nervous system arousal can be released through crying. Think about after you've cried and cried and cried in a moment, how you take that big deep breath and your body feels totally relaxed, right? So crying releases it laughter, physical movement, often aggressive physical movement, um, rhythm, some sort of rhythm can release it. Uh, oh, yelling, yelling and screaming um, is the one that I missed. So there are all these different ways that we can release nervous system arousal. And I think your son maybe 
after the bike ride, partly he was probably releasing some of that through the physical movement, but then the tear in his pants probably jumped him back up again. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but he needed that space to be able to kind of, you know, you said sort of relieve the pressure. And I think that's a good way to think of it. Yeah. It's almost like the steam that has to be released. And, and there are lots of different ways to release it. And laughter can be um, a really fun, good way to do that as well. And, and what I love is that is. If you as a parent are calm and are receptive and are in that sort of why investigative mode, then you get to learn so much from your child when they do finally release. Because for example, for him, the thing that topped it all up was the fact that I'd offered him broccoli instead of carrot for lunch. But at the time, he just accepted it and said nothing. <laughs> it, it then makes you, it gives you these, these little insights and windows into how their mind is working and also how hard they are working to yeah, basis. And it gives you an appreciation of how hard they're trying. That is so true. Yes. Regulated, then you actually are open to receiving so much more from them. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful, Corinna. One of my favorite little phrases to use with families is turn frustration into fascination. So oh, I love that. When you start feeling frustrated, you use that as kind of a trigger for yourself to go, oh wait, I need to be, or I want to be fascinated instead. What's going on here? You know, how can I, what, what happened and how can I connect to then? I love that. Yeah, it's a fun one. And I think the other thing as a parent is to not to take things personally so that when the child is directing yeah. their frustration or anger, it's not about you at all, it's just about them. The other piece that I find interesting in my work with autism that you just brought up is kind of that connect and redirect piece. And um, I've kind of capitalized on the connect part before redirecting in, in uh, with kids with autism, we kind of get into and um, I'm not necessarily saying us, but I see a lot of people in the field get into forgetting to connect just to connect. So only trying to get somebody to do something or to comply or to, um, you know, never for just, hey, I enjoy time with you or, hey, I'm here for you or for soothing or things like that. It's just always, it seems to, people in the autism world seem to get into just this um, response you know, mode. <laughs> that's really interesting, Barb, and I think that, um, I think that's probably the case with a lot of parents in general. I hadn't oh. never thought about that, but it's almost like, it's almost like a trick or a tool we use to get cooperation. And in fact, oftentimes it does lead to, to cooperation and it's a good yeah. way to do it. But not if we're using, and not really so much if we're using it, um, I mean, it almost, it, it could be even manipulative if you think about it from exactly. that Exactly, yeah. Um, but you're right, I think um, the idea of investing in connection and relationship just for the sake of building relationship will is huge for the progress we're gonna make um, in terms of skills, but also just in terms of what's meaningful and what feels right and how we're, our brains are wired to connect. And building trust so that when you do need to be there to soothe or to redirect, that that trust is there. That you're a safe person and that you're, you know, you understand them. They get, you get them a little bit better. <laughs> well, and that's, I think you just hit on um, one of the most important words yet so far in this conversation and that's that word safe because mm. regardless of, I mean, when you talk about neurodiversity, um, there is one thing that for sure ties us all together regardless of um, our capacities and that is safety. The brain cares, number one, beyond everything else about safety. Yeah. And so if there's anything that the brain or the nervous system detects as a threat to safety, all of our attention will go to making us safe. And so we have to start with safety. Mm -hmm. and, and I think the way we do that is through building trust, through building relationship. And so, um, you know, that's, you know, that's just the, the bottom line of everything. So I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, um, I love, you know, kind of back to tools and techniques, which is kind of funny, because I know that you, you know, 
are really working on staying away from those. But one of the tools that you've talked about before is um, really sitting lower than eye level and things that, that that's a huge one that has been really successful for a lot of families. Would you be willing to talk about that? Yes, yes. And let me just be clear, I'm not at all against tools and, and, right. and obviously, you know, in both books, there are you know huge sections on what we do practically and using sure. the tools and you know we even call and whole and whole, whole brain twelve strategies. Um, right, that's and, true. Uh, so I think I think the the tools are really helpful because like I said they they allow us to um, have something to do to kind of trump our automaticity and then it, and then mm. those things become automatic. Um, yeah, this is a this is a huge one, and it's probably the thing that most people come back to tell me has been <laughs> the most impactful. Yeah, and it actually happened accidentally one time in a session I was doing with a family, and I had been studying with Pat Ogden at the time, and I was studying Stephen Porges and all of these things, and so I was I was uh, very much on my mind was this idea of safety and hyper arousal, and how how do we how do we get to places of optimal nervous system arousal and all these things, and so. I was working with this couple and um, the dad was telling me about his five-year-old and he was saying, you know, he, we just, they, we get, they didn't, they would get into these huge battles and the dad would, and this kid, by the way, the parents had no idea because pediatricians don't screen and a lot of parents don't know, this kid had extreme sensory um, sensitivities that, um, that the occupational therapist was able to really help him with. But at the time, you know, they thought his behavior was just that he was a brat and he needed to be disciplined more strictly. That was their lens, right? Mm -hmm. And um, and they were interpreting things, you know, I said, no, 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 what you're telling me is, is a can't for him, not a won't. It, it, he's he's completely, feels like being in these environments is threatening. And so that's why he's kicking and biting and all of these things. So anyway, we were starting there, and so then the dad was telling me that how he would, and his son would get into these arguments, and so he would, um, his son would say, I want the blue cup, and the dad would say, well, you can't have the blue cup, it's dirty, and then they, they would go back and forth, and they would argue, and instead of soothing um, his distress, dad would amplify um, mm -hmm. his son's distress and send his son into even more states of hyperarousal. And so I said, you know, in my brain I was thinking, how can we have the opposite effect? And I said, you know what, I'd really like is for us to think about how can we communicate to your, I said, what's happening when you're yelling at him and when you're having these fights with him is that you're communicating threat, 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 threat to your child's brain. And so your child has no other option than to do the fight, flight, freeze stuff. He mm -hmm. can't learn in those moments. He can't calm himself down either. So I said, what can we do? What, how can we communicate no threat in the most basic way? And so I started thinking about mammals. And I thought about how, so I said to the dad, if you were to approach a dog that was in an agitated state, would yeah. you yell at the dog and get really physically aggressive and wag, shake your finger at it? And he said, no, 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 <laughs> I'd put out the back of my hand and I'd crouch down and I would say something like, it's okay, come here. I said, right, so non-verbally you'd be communicating to that dog, no threat. And right. I said, why don't we try that with your son? And I said, you know, honestly, when we think about dogs and when we think about mammals, the quickest way to communicate to your child's nervous system, no threat, is to actually get below his eye level. Not at eye level, but below his eye level and put your body in a really relaxed posture. So the dad um, left and came back a couple weeks later and he said, um, I thought that was really terrible advice and I was never gonna do it. I was not gonna get it in a submissive position underneath my child. Um, he said, but my child was raging and in a moment of desperation, I sat on the floor and leaned back on my arms. And because oh, I, I also had told dad that he was supposed to stop talking so much because he would just talk and talk and talk at his son, which would flood his nervous system, his sensory system even more. Uh -huh. So I said, you can say, I can see you're really angry right now. So you can say something empathetic about the feelings. And then I want you to only say, I'm right here with you. So those are the two instructions I gave him. And then to stop talking. So dad came back. And he said, I did it. And um, he said, I've never seen my child calm down that quickly. Hmm. He said, something else happened. And he said, I stayed calmer than I've ever been able to. And there's yeah. a bunch of science that backs up why that, that is that we don't have time for today. But it's the idea that when you posture yourself in a specific position, it activates your brain's associations with that posture and, and um, activates different emotions and those kinds of things. That's the kind of general idea. Yeah. So it was really amazing. I started going, okay, well, let me, let's start trying this. And I started having more and more families do it. And not perfectly, but remarkably, 
families were finding that if they could get below their child's eye level and with an empathic tone of voice, just basically communicate, I see that you're feeling really big feelings right now and I'm right here with you. Mm -hmm. That when they were able to do that, their child felt safe. And so it turned off all that fight reactivity circuitry and allowed them to move back into a state of, of safety and regulation. And then that's when we address the behaviors and, and those kinds of things. So fantastic. I often will make that recommendation, especially for um, parents of teenagers, um, where, you know, teenagers often have, as I'm sure you know, habits of, you know, their parent is going to knock on the door and then want something, and then so it just is this automatic, you know, the, the response. And so oftentimes just having the parent come in and sit down and say nothing <laughs> and just um, be next to them for a moment and actually wait for the teen to kind of go, hey, what's up? Why are you here? So that it's kind of decoupling that automatic response and, um, having it be about, about connection first. And um, yeah, I just, I'm so thrilled with uh, the responses I get from families just in using that just below eye level or even just, you know, and just the response in themselves of feeling calmer. Um, and just, what's, yeah. What's beautiful about it is it's really not really verbal. You know, it's nonverbal. And yeah. so if it's a pre-verbal child or it's a child who doesn't typically articulate feelings or, or have a, a strong emotional uh, vocabulary, you know, it's really powerful because it's it's mammalian. And by the way, it works on uh, your significant others and um, <laughs> yep. your bosses and, and other people too. And um, because it does, it communicates something completely powerful with just, you know, that posturing. Yeah. Tina and I were just talking about just the importance of uh, using your body language basically for yeah. soothing not only your son but then also yourself in that moment and um, I don't know how much of that that you caught before I, I've got most of it. Oh good, okay. Um, so uh, you know maybe I was, um, we should probably start thinking about you know um, letting Tina go on with her day and maybe getting some sleep, haha. -ha. Probably that's not possible, but <laughs> um, you know, the we talked about it, safety, and that's what kind of brought us into talking about body language. But I know that that is, um, you know, just one of a list of S's: the safe, secure, seen, and soothed. Yes. Um, that uh, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about. But I also one piece that really resonates in what I do with families is making sure that you. Um, you had two things that you were talking about recently when I was listening to you. Soothe the shit out of your kid and take care of yourself so you can. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm wondering if you could talk about those two things, um, if you'd be willing. Absolutely. So um, I'll start with the last one there. So I was at a professional conference that I go to every year. It's one I never miss for my own um, enrichment. It's the uh, Lifespan Learning Institute um, mm. Interpersonal Neurobiology Conference that goes on at UCLA in March every year. You'll, you might um, see me one year there. I want to go. Oh, uh, it's, it's <laughs> just my brain candy. You know, it's all, yeah. the, all the greats in the, in the field are there. And, um, and so, you know, I was sitting with a group of my colleagues and we were having lunch together and we were sort of debriefing about the last speaker. And, um, and someone looked at me and she said, Tina, take everything you know about the brain, about development, about everything, and what one piece of advice would you give parents? And I thought for a moment, and I said, I would tell them to soothe the shit out of their kids. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I said, but wait, I have to have a second thing. The second thing is to take care of ourselves so we have the capacity to do it. And I, I just know all the moments um, that I have not been a soothing calm present and I've amplified my children's distress instead of um, calming it and being that safe haven are moments where I was exhausted, I haven't had enough food, I haven't had enough time for myself, my, yeah. overwhelm, my emotions got the best of me and if we don't have, you know, just like we don't expect, you know, a five-year-old to, you know, manage their emotions beautifully all the time because they don't yet have the capacity to do it, if we are not caring for ourselves and um, and doing our own work, we don't have the capacity to parent the way we'd like to. And so that's that's sort of the, the thing that I boiled it down to. And of course, you know, the, the reason I chose um, to soothe our children as the sort of primary thing is based on everything we've talked about, about how that's the key to discipline and how um, 
that's the key to safety. But then there's this third piece, which is is where you started um, this last part, which is the four S's that, um, you know, and that's Dan Siegel's phrase, which I just love, the safe, secure, seen, and soothed. And that's based on the attachment literature. And let me just be really clear, I'm not talking about attachment parenting. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm talking about um, under the developmental psychology umbrella, an area of research that has about 60 or 70 years of research behind it called attachment. And attachment is something I encourage parents to really start learning about it because it's it actually completely changed how I understood my own family. Um, but the bottom line is that the best predictor for how well a child turns out when we measure everything, um, and this is based on Alan Srof's work out of University of Minnesota, some longitudinal studies he did. And if you're, if you're listening to this and you're kind of a geek and you love research or you love um, psychology development, his book is called The Development of the Person, and it's really, really interesting. One of my favorites. It's a good one. Yeah. Um, so um, what, what they found when they took all of these children and they measured them over time in lots of different situations and lots of different um, you know, psychological constructs, what they found is the best predictor for how well turn, children turned out on every single thing they measured them on was that they had secure attachment with at least one person. Mm-hmm. And what is secure attachment? It is having repeated, predictable, not perfect, experiences <laughs> where you feel safe and secure and seen and soothed and of course by seen I don't just mean your physical presence but your mind your inter- internal landscape so if someone says you look sad and, and sees how you feel so I think these four S's safe secure seen and soothed you know that that's sort of when we're talking about having a lens right and so hmm. if ever I don't know what to do as a mom if ever I don't know what to do as a wife or as a daughter or as a best friend or a sister, or as a clinician, where I'm looking at the kid and I'm going, what the hell do I do here with this kid? Oh, I never I feel know, that way. I'm sure you've never <laughs> felt that way. Um, I go back to the four S's, and I say, yeah. ah, safe, secure, seen, and soothe. Do something that makes them feel one of those. And when I do that, I know that, because I've studied all of this, that when we have repeated predictable experiences of feeling safe, secure, seen, and soothed, our middle prefrontal cortices get built better. And yeah. our middle prefrontal cortices allow us to feel empathy and make good decisions and be flexible and have morality and be able to tune into other people and make good decisions. And all of these mm-hmm. sort of emo- emotional intelligence and, um, and aspects of mental health. And so I just know that the, these, these four things, safe, secure, seen, and soothed, is what we are in our, our inborn instincts. So that's really what attachment comes down to. Let me take one step back, is that attachment is an inborn mammalian instinct. And it's, it's really the idea that, particularly during times of stress or distress, we most want to be close to someone who will allow us to feel safe, secure, seen, and soothed. So the example I like to give is like if you're a chimp in the jungle and you get hurt or you hear a scary noise and you feel afraid or, or in pain, the first thing you're going to do is run to your attachment figures or someone who will help you be safe and mm-hmm. it will and will allow you to have a better chance of living. So it's a very primal instinct that we have. Um, and that when you know, and, and so when we when we, we seek that out, and so this is what really guides um, how our brains develop optimally is by by this this experience. Now, like I said, it's just one. We just need it with at least one caregiver. Better if it's more than one. Um, and I believe my children have secure attachment relationships with their grandparents, and so the more the merrier in terms of secure attachment. <laughs> um, but it's essential, um, and, and I think one other thing to say just to just pique people's curiosity is that the number one predictable, um, the number one way we predict whether or not we're able to provide secure attachment to our children is not whether or not we received it from our own parents, thank goodness, because <laughs> really only about 40% of the population um, grew up with secure attachment. And um, so, I'm sorry, not 40%, 60%. Uh, well, actually, figures range from 55 to 60 percent um, in the latest research. But um, the best predictor for how well it, we're able to provide safe, secure, seen, and soothed experiences somewhat predictably to our children is 
that we um, have reflected on our experiences growing up and been able to say, what was it like for me? Did I really believe that if I had needs that someone would see them and respond to them? Or did I have I always kind of believed that you can't count on anyone else? And if you're upset, you better stuff it down there and, and decide it doesn't matter that you feel that way. Or do you get completely like flooded and overwhelmed? Like, I need you to be near me, but I don't know if I can trust you. And, and do you have a lot of anxiety and ambivalence about trusting? And these are some different types of attachment we don't have time to get into. but. I think the key is that if you if you want to really do the best thing in for your child's um, to build secure attachment, if you didn't grow up with it or you don't feel like you have the capacity to do it, it's such a message of hope because um, there's something called earned secure attachment, and we can learn how to do that. And if someone's interested in kind of digging into this and learning about this more, uh-huh. I highly recommend um, Dan Siegel's book with Mary Hartzell called Parenting from the Inside Out. Absolutely. That allows us to reflect on how our own brains have been wired um, and that has a, um, a, an impact on how we provide um, those four S's to our own children. Yeah. I think it's interesting. I mean, I think um, that you know, what happens and why I'm wanting, you know, to, to bring you into this podcast is really that if your child has autism, it doesn't mean that you um, have this whole other set of parenting techniques that you have to use. It's actually, in my opinion, really that um, needing to uh, look at some of those things maybe even more than a lot of people have to because their child is dealing with some sensory regulation pieces that um, may be more extreme and really um, needing that connection and that um, focus on feeling safe, secure, seen, and soothed. That's right, and you know, every child is different, and what makes one child feel safe might feel dysregulating to another child, and that's that's the yeah. case across the board. And so, if your child is on the spectrum, the way you help them feel safe, secure, seen, and soothed might be different from another child, um, mm-hmm. but, or, or how often they need to feel, you know, that, that they, they feel like they need that safety piece mm-hmm. um, or how you go about doing that might be different. But that's the case across the board, um, given sensory preferences and all kinds of other things. But sure. I think that, that's exactly right, Barb. And I'll just throw in one more little science thing here. And that is that, you know, um, when, when, secure atta- when attachment styles, so secure types of attachment and different types of insecure t- types of attachment mm-hmm. are measured on children on the spectrum, mm-hmm. they have normal distribution of attachment right. stuff, which tells us that their attachment relationships are very, very similar to neurotypical p- populations. And yeah. so it's not, it's not something in, in terms of attachment that's different. Right, right, absolutely. Tina, your um, recommendations are so incredibly helpful. Do you want to share how uh, listeners might be able to access your information? Oh, yeah. Thank you. That's it. I always forget about that stuff. Um, <laughs> my website is tina at tinabryson.com, and it's B-R-Y-S-O-N. And then uh, my new center, you can find a link on my website, but that is the centerforconnection.org. Thank you very much from me as well, and good luck. Thank you, Corinna. Nice to meet you. And Barb, I love the work you're doing, and please, I'm so excited to share what you're doing here. So uh, I look forward to um, being able to share this. Yeah, maybe some future conversations too. I love it. I'm yeah. always a delight to talk with you. Fabulous. Thank you. Thank you both. You've been listening to the Synergy Autism Podcast with Barbara Avila. For more information about this program, please visit our website, SynergyAutismCenter.com.